Welcome to the TEH, the Tech Enthusiast Hour podcast, where several hosts talk about what they find interesting in tech this week. The show notes for this episode are at tehpodcast.com slash teh54. This week, we have all four regular hosts who aren't really ready to go, but we're doing it anyway. Hey. I'm Randy Cassingham, founder of ThisIsTrue.com, the oldest entertainment feature on the internet, and the internet spam primer helping you get your inbox back. I'm Kevin Savitz, creator of FaxZero.com, which I guarantee you is the only website on the internet that has sent 18,379,360 faxes. Wow. That's a lot of faxes. I'm Leo Notenboom, the Leo behind AskLeo.com, where I try to answer the unanswerable tech questions that people tend to have. And I'm Gary Rosenzweig, the guy behind MacMost.com for Mac stuff, CleverMedia.com for apps, and WPTipsAndHacks.com for WordPress stuff. So, cool. yeah. So we were talking before, a, bunch of, a couple of us got some new computers, new machines. Uh, new toys, well, new toys. I did, my wife did. Your wife, well, you know, it's, it's you probably more powerful than mine because, you know, it's a couple of years newer now, but... One and a half pounds of two-in-one Dell notebook. So you just yank on it, and it pull, the the display comes off the keyboard, and it's wireless. And and uh, well, if you yank on mine hard enough, the display will come off the keyboard too. <laughs> yeah, but this one will go back on. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of neat. It's all magnetic. So when when I first was putting it together, you know, everything comes separate. So I took the display and said, "Well, it probably goes on like this," and it went snap. Because the magnets grabbed it out of my hand. It's like, whoa. So the keyboard is just the keyboard and the computer itself is behind the screen? Yep. Is that how it works? Okay. So it works as a tablet when you're not, right. you don't have the keyboard attached. And, and it's, you know, touch screen and all that. Huh. That's pretty Very good. Cool. But 16 gigs of RAM stuffed in there and a, and a pretty big battery. I'm not sure how long the battery lasts, but a long time. And which model? Which model was it? It's the 7285. Is and, that like? Uh, I tried to get her to wait because there's a new one coming out mm-hmm. uh, in May, I think. March or May. And she said, I can't wait that long. Because, yeah, her, her old computer is dying. Um, it's a, if so, but is it a, like a, an Inspiron, a Latitude, uh, uh, something like that? Uh, it's a Latitude. Okay, cool. Yeah, I Inspiron did. Is, is a low end product. So right. you want to be at Latitude or above. Right. And, uh, so what did you get? I, uh, for years, I, the, the Dells that I was carrying with me for many years were Latitudes, and they served me quite well. But I'm replacing my, um, not only my, my MacBook Pro uh, laptop, which had started to become unreliable, but also my desktop while I'm at it with a single computer. So I ended up with a Dell um, XPS 15 um, with, uh, well, right now it's got 16 gig of RAM in it, but I've got a 32 gig um, upgrade on its way. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's very nice. I'm very, very pleased with it so far. And in fact, to quote Madge, or maybe her name was Midge, you're soaking in it. Um, it's the, uh, the laptop that I'm currently using right now to run our, uh, our collaboration software, and everything seems to be working. I have a couple of pros and cons um, for it that I'm saving for the articles that I'm writing about it. The first, the first article on my upgrade series pops out next, I think, next Wednesday. But uh, You're I'll not going to some... give our 
listeners a sneak preview. Come on, Leo. Well, the sneak preview that I'll share is that um, I ended up getting a docking station for my desktop because it just seemed like a really nice way to deal with things is to you know have everything that's on my desktop plugged into the docking station so that the laptop was like one thing. It supposedly would have power and all the data connections for everything. Yeah, I got one for my wife too. Yep. Um, no, not worth it for me. Not going to work for me. Um, I've really? tried it in two scenarios. Um, I've got it when I was using it on my desktop. The problem I had was that the second monitor uh, and the display on the laptop would uh, occasionally just black out for a couple of seconds. No rhyme or reason. Just they go black. And like my mom. Oh, it's. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the. Uh, that was annoying enough. And of course, I did some research on it. And of course, the, the answers have all boiled down to make sure the firmware is as up to date as possible, which of course is what I did before I even installed anything. So right now, that looks like it's going to be a, uh, something that's going to keep me from using it on my desktop. Now, uh, you may remember, I actually use, I do things in two locations in my home. And I'm in that second location right now, my little quote unquote studio. And I've got it plugged in here because it's a convenient power supply, if nothing else. And I've got it connected to things like this microphone and, and uh, the Ethernet and, you know, keyboard and mouse, a real keyboard and mouse. Now, I said microphone, but of course, no, that didn't quite work either. The microphone quality, it's a USB microphone, but the setting that would improve the quality was not accessible to me if the microphone was plugged into the docking station. So I've actually had to plug two things into this, uh, the laptop, the, uh, the connection to the docking station, and then separately, because it needs to be handled separately, uh, the microphone. So the, uh, the docking station's been a bit of a disappointment so far. I'm going to keep my eyes open for any uh, firmware, software updates and see if you... Well, I actually haven't opened my wife's yet, so hopefully we won't have much problem because yeah. her computer is so small and light, it doesn't actually have USB except for the one USB-C right. that uh, connects it to everything. Well, and it's really easy to invest in a USB-C to USB-3 hub. You know, those are a dime a dozen. Uh, and I've actually got a couple. If we were closer, I'd throw one at you. But, <laughs> I've got, yeah, I've got multiples of them. But the, uh, uh, so I, that's, I understand the design decision. This actually only has two USB 3 ports, uh, two USB ports on it, plus the USB-C, which is what the uh, the docking station is plugged into. USB-C is nice because it actually can work both ways. And in this case, it's uh, not only connecting up the peripherals to the laptop, but it's also providing power to the laptop. Yeah, which is kind of neat because there's only one plug on, on my wife's computer, which is the USB-C. So yeah. the docking station actually powers it. Yep. Yep. It's very cool. If it works, but if it works, good luck with that. Anyway, but the laptop itself, I've been really pleased with. It's driving my, my, uh, my monitor just smooth, seamlessly. Uh, uh, yep. World of Warcraft works great. Um, oh, and is the big monitor you're talking about last week? Uh, it is. It's this 38 inch curved Dell monitor. Um, it's, it's huge. It's glorious. It's, it's, uh, really, really working well. Uh, and like I said, I'm just shocked that I wasn't really expecting um, something as demanding as a game to run as smoothly on not just a big monitor, but a big external monitor, uh, which is only connected up via HDMI. And it's just working well. It's going great. So I'm pretty pretty pleased with, with cool. the setup of my desktop, except for the number of, number of things I have to unplug to move it. 
How about you, Gary? You uh, doing something exciting like a new computer? <laughs> no, nope, nothing new here. Kind of uh, um, with the other Mac users, kind of in a, a limbo, waiting for some new hardware to come out so I can get some new stuff. But uh, but no, the only thing I can come up with for what I did this week that was remotely tech related was uh, I reread the famous novel 1984. I guess I read it when I was younger at some point. And which is always fun because anytime you read that book, you find something that kind of like, oh, this predicted this or that, you know, um, mm. whether you read it in 1990. Yeah. So what did you read that you hadn't noticed before that predicted something? Well, <laughs> the whole fake news thing was kind of interesting. That was in there a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, predicting a lot of that, double <clears throat> think, I think they called it, where you could just say one thing and you know, it goes against the facts, that kind of deal. But also, you know, the whole, we've got, um, they had these telescreens everywhere that could uh, listen to you and watch you and all this stuff. And, and, you know, the funny thing is, of course, that in the book, they're forced upon everybody by the government. And now in 2019, we're actually voluntarily spending money to get them from private companies who uh, don't want to control us so much as sell us stuff. <laughs> so take our money, I guess. Um, so anyway, yeah, there's, there's a lot of that in there. I think it's, it's, a it's not, a, it's, in general, it's not a very good book as far as like fun to read. Um, well, but it's not it, fun to read. No, no I read it, I reread it late, late last year. Oh, okay. And, uh, I came away looking at the fake news thing just a little bit differently. I actually yeah. found it slightly reassuring that we weren't actually at 1984 <laughs> yes. in the sense that in the book, uh, there's no record, right? There's there's like one yes. official record of what happens, and they randomly change history by changing the one official record. Uh, whereas today, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons we have fake news, but there are so many different sources of information, and everything can be copied and archived in an instant. Uh, there's just no way to know which of the multiple copies are, are canonical. Right. Yeah, no, and that was <clears throat> that is interesting. Yeah, we we've diversified where the technology is, right? We've got our own devices and our own websites, right? It's not the government that controls, you know, it's uh it's people that are publishing. You know, right. pu- publishing power has gone out. Um and I guess, you know, like the the fake news thing, just thinking like, you know, climate change deniers, right? You know, you could just have all this evidence and then still somebody says no. <laughs> you know, and and then you could have anti-vaxxers and, you know, all this right, evidence right, until somebody says no. You know, so it's this idea the, that you could just have this, uh, I don't know, double think kind of news, um, even the flat earth type of thing. Flat earth is actually brought up in 1984 as an example. Of, really? Like several <laughs> times of, yeah, the earth is flat. You know, there's like two plus two equals five is one of the, right. the mantras. Right. And, um, who you're at war with is another one, uh, which is also interesting. There's the constant state of war yep. that's in the book. And you think about it, it's like, well, so since 2000 and, oh, no, when was it? Uh, since around 1990, or you could say maybe 2002, we've been in a constant state of war, right? Because that's how long we've been in Afghanistan and, and Iraq and there's several other conflict zones, so we've almost kind of reached that constant state of war <laughs> type of thing. Um, but, but yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting read. Uh, it, 
I guess if it was written in 1980, I would be less impressed. It's the fact that it was written in whatever the fifties and that earlier than that, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Cause even impressive. the, it yeah, even the idea of a telescreen. Because it was a version of 1984. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. The, I mean, even the idea of a telescreen from a technology standpoint, you know, thinking 1948 and then thinking what we ha all have now, right? Um, you know, webcams on all of our computers and we watch, you know, Netflix on our computers and on set-top boxes on our, in our living rooms. It's kind of interesting. Yep. So, anyway, enough about that. Kevin, what have you been up to? So I went on a weird uh, down back alley uh, this week with, uh, I, was, I was researching something about Atari computers or something, and I stumbled upon uh, an article about a programming language uh, called Vigil that was released in 1981 for the Commodore PET computer. Um, and then later, I think they came out with a version of it for the VIC-20. And this was, I found an advertisement for it from 1981. It says, Vigil, interactive graphics game language for the pet CBM. Vigil is an exciting new interactive language for your micro. Vigil, video interactive game interpretive language is an easy to learn graphics and game language that lets you quickly create interactive applications. So I had never heard of this language. Sorry? I said, woo wee. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's exciting, right? So I'd so never heard of this language. So do you have an emulator language. to run it? But you needed uh, a pet pet computer. Do you remember those guys? They were, yeah, but yeah, do well, yeah. you have one? Yeah. Do I have one? No, but I have an emulator. Emulator. Okay, so, that's what I thought. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, so I was, uh, I'd never heard of this language. And, you know, I know quite a bit about early micros, and I've heard of some weird languages. I never heard of this one. So... I uh, asked around on, on the Twitters and didn't get a lot of response. So just for fun, I uh, uh, it's a, this ad says, uh, Copyright 1981 by Roy Wainwright. So I tracked down Roy and uh, <laughs> talked to him on the phone for a while. And after he got over the, the initial of like, why do you care about this thing I did you know, 35 years ago, 39 years ago? Um, and uh, after I got over that, he gave me some information and uh, I asked around on, on Twitter and no one had this language. You know, there are all these websites of archives of old Atari software and Apple II software and that sort of stuff. And, um, and there's one, of course, for Commodore and it wasn't in the Commodore area. So I uh, um, talked to a bunch of people just like, we want to know about this language and how does it work and what's the you know, how do you, how do you program in it and can we make it work? So, uh, I called, I emailed Roy and I asked him if he could send me his, his one and only copy of, uh, the vigil language, which he did. I received it today. Um, and I have scanned the manual and uh, uploaded it to archive.org and I, uh, digitized the audio of the cassette tape that he sent me that has the data on it. Um, <laughs> back from when software was distributed on cassette. So I, digitized that audio and have sent it off to uh, the, the uh, Commodore experts who will try to uh, see if they can make it run on an emulator. Cool. Wow. Yeah, and then, Fun then stuff. you can program in Vigil, for, which probably no one ever did, except for Wainwright. Should upload it to SoundCloud and let it see if it, you, you can chart the, uh, <laughs> the audio of the, right. of the code, right? <laughs> <laughs> Make it just, you know, sample it and use it in some sort of song or something. Oh, yeah. So it'll live on forever as this. 
piece of music. Yes. Yeah. So anyway, that was my, uh, some of my old computer excitement that uh, came out from out of nowhere. So cool. It. Cool. It's just like your call to Roy. It came out of nowhere. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He was, he was a little confused. I just, <laughs> who's next? Well, I guess that would be me. So, oh, yeah. um, I was perusing a, the very technical website, the London Independent, <laughs> that had an article about GPS. And I had heard that the planet's um, magnetic fields are in real flux right now. So I, when I saw this, it, I clued right into it because GPS partly is reliant on the correction for where the North Pole is in in uh, comparison to the magnetic North Pole. I don't really know exactly how this all works, but to make GPS completely accurate, especially for ships in the North waters, and I presume in the South waters too, that um, they've got to put an error correction in as to where the North Pole, the magnetic North Pole is right now. And they update that every five years. Well, it's been so crazy lately that they realize it's going to be out of spec for navigation really soon. So we have to do an emergency update to the offset chart for the magnetic North Pole, which is kind of mind-boggling in itself. But here's the real twist. Because the government is on shutdown right now, there's nobody to upload the correction. So right now we're kind of teetering, waiting for somebody to come back to fix this. It's wow. interesting to me that, I mean, GPS is a global system that just happens to be operated by the United States. So right. we're kind of like a single point of failure for the planet. Well, there are other navigation satellites, including the Russian GLONASS, but yeah, I mean, most people use GPS. It's GPS, exactly, exactly. So interesting. Uh, so the mag- it's funny, the magnetic field uh, uh, m- uh, wandering around, if I understand right, it's like a wobble. It kind of you know, meanders around where, uh, where its location actually Yeah, it's normal for it to move around. Right, it's just getting a little bit more excited lately. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure, other than GPS, does it have any practical impact on anything? You guys um, know? Well, it, it actually would change compasses too. Yeah, compass would. Man- manual magnetic compass, although I doubt most people would have any clue that that uh, it was moving around. Right. Yeah. To our no, detect. It's, it's funny. Doesn't, all... doesn't the magnetic field of the of the, the planet switch every billion years or something like that? Something yeah. like that, yes. And we're probably overdue for the swap, and it's going to you know create have to absolute update, havoc to the entire planet my, when it does. compass collection. So do... <laughs> So, you Randy, you have to paint the red on the one side and change. <laughs> oh, it's going to be a whole thing. Randy, you just said it's going to create havoc. How? Other than the GPS system, which I'm assuming, you know, we'll have some way of correcting. You um, mean, you mean if the poles flip? Yeah, I think it'd probably uh, do things like mess up the electrical grid and things like that. So, interesting. When, yeah. when yeah. the pole, so we don't. It, they haven't flipped in recorded history, right? Correct. Right. Right. So my question is, is it instantaneous or is there a short period of time? And in geologic terms, short period could be years where 
it's just chaotic and we could perhaps be looking at issues with like more electromagnetic radiation from the sun getting through uh, to the ground because damn good question. I don't know the answer. Uh, Wow. So for, for reference, um, I'll include the link or I'll provide the link for the show notes. The comic XKCD also touches on this one. And I think it's today's comic. I haven't caught up with that yet. Yep. It's 2098. Basically the bottom line is that, uh, People keep trying to come up with reasons that we should worry about the magnetic field collapsing or reversing, but honestly, I think it's fine. Uh, Let's see. Whatever minor problems it causes will be made up for by the mid-latitude auroras. (laughs) That sounds like fun. So, anyway. While you were talking, I was looking at the uh, usgs.gov website and asking, uh, does the Earth magnetic field affect human health? And it says, not directly, but only due to the amount of radiation that that uh, gets to us. I'm impressed that you were able to get to the USGS site. <laughs> well, I just hit reload until I got the, the, the one port that's still available on the server. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, that's the one the port they topic. left, they could afford to leave open, I mean. <clears throat> that is the next topic. You it's take almost off? like I was trying to make a segue. Yeah. Um, Trying. So the the government shutdown has affected all sorts of random things uh, that you you know some are I mean it's all annoying but there's different scales of being annoying the fact that the uh, national parks for example many of them are either closed or running without uh, without anybody working you know so it's dirt, uh, garbage is piling up that kind of stuff to things like TSA being working without being paid or worse air traffic controllers are working without being paid and they're kind of grumpy about it. You don't really want your air traffic controllers to be grumpy. No, 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 no. The, uh, the other one that kind of surprised, I think a lot of people is that government websites are starting to uh, stop working and they're not working because of a very simple thing that we as website owners encounter all the time. HTTPS uses what are called certificates and these certificates need to be renewed periodically. We've all run into cases where, oops, I forgot to renew a certificate, and for about a day, your website throws errors when, everybody try, when anybody tries to visit it. Well, several government websites are apparently now throwing errors or worse, which I'll talk about in a second, because, yeah, their certificate's expired, but there's nobody around to actually submit the renewal. So they're just sitting there, websites not working or throwing errors, I guess, until the government shutdown is over. It's interesting because in the past, a bad uh, certificate could usually be sidestepped by just telling your browser, yeah, yeah, I accept the, the, uh, uh, you know, the, the danger. You know, I know that it's only expired certificate, so I can accept the thing and we'll just proceed on to see the website anyway. Unfortunately, a, an improvement to the HTTPS protocol or to the HTTP protocol called, I think it's HSTS, actually uh, requires that if the certificate check fails for any reason, you don't give people an option. You cannot get to the website, period. And several of those kind of, of uh, servers are out there that are preventing uh, people from getting to Things like, um, let's see, I've got a sum of the lists here. Uh, I don't have it in front of me. Uh, but there are, you know, many. Court of gov- Appeals is one. And- governments, government, U.S. federal government level websites that 
they just don't work at all, period, uh, which is actually kind of scary. It's scary for a couple of different reasons. The, the one that I thought was interesting that I saw mentioned in an article somewhere was that hackers know this, and they're going to basically try and throw out scams uh, that take advantage of these websites not working, fooling you into saying, well, you know, our website's currently not working. You should go over here to this website that just happens to be, I don't know, based in Pakistan or something. Um, so it's something else to uh, to think about and something else that um, is, again, one of these unexpected side effects of what happens when you shut down a good portion of your government. Hmm. Interesting. Bad stuff. So how come I can get all my certificates renewed automatically using auto SSL and the government can't or doesn't? I'm pretty sure that, well, first of all, auto SSL is pretty leading edge technology. You know, it's a couple of years new and I would never, ever characterize the U.S. federal government as being leading edge technology. Yeah, good point. So they're still doing the old style stuff. And to be fair, you don't really want them to be using auto SSL. Auto SSL has perhaps the lowest barrier to entry. Um, I think that uh, there was a report that I read, gosh, a couple of weeks ago that said something like, I don't know, some significant percentage, I'll say at least double digits, maybe 20% of all phishing sites are now valid HTTPS simply because they're using auto SSL. Uh, they're HTTPS to a bad domain, to a fake domain, but they're still valid HTTPS. So the fact that we've been training people to rely on HTTPS as an indicator of security, well, that's not necessarily the case in all different, you know, in all the variations. And of course, that was predictable. I mean, come on. Of course, of course. But the bottom line is that um, the more traditional ways of getting an HTTPS certificate actually proving that you own the domain, actually jumping through the hoops that they make you hope, uh, jump through for the various levels of validation that you can get. They do add security, and I would want the government to have to jump through those hoops. Unfortunately, like I said, it needs somebody to be in the office to do the hoop jumping. Uh, and that just, you know, there's nobody there to do that right now. Yeah, a lot of people just don't understand that seeing that it's a secure site doesn't mean it's not a scam. You just have a secure connection to the scammer. <laughs> yes, right. exactly. good. So no other scammers can steal your data while you're being scammed by the scammers. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You've limited your number of scams to probably one right. that, for that session. At that time, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So anyway, yeah, HTTPS, it's, it's really, uh, it is unfortunate that this is happening, but it's also, um, as you say, not terribly unexpected, I suppose. Yep. Gary, you got excited by something. It says here, yeah. I want one. What is this? Like, I'm excited by weird stuff. This is like, uh, so this is a, a kind of a trend, but there's a company at CES uh, called Nanoleaf that what they produce is they, they produce interesting things that you can control using things like Apple's HomeKit or, you know, the Google or Microsoft equivalents, you know, where you can control lights and, you know, things in your house. Um, and Nanoleaf makes these panels that go on your wall and you can arrange them on your wall how you like. So you can make like a big rectangle of these light panels and then control them to show different things like, you know, different colors in each pixel on your wall um, to show something artistic or something useful like a number 
or a clock or something like that, or even do things like, you know, say have a, an alarm that basically the panels slowly start to glow in the morning and get brighter and brighter and huh. produce patterns. And I just love stuff like this because you could be really creative with it. You know, you, you could use their app. I assume I don't have one of these, but you could use their app to create interesting patterns and pieces of art, you know, uh, yourself or perhaps, you know, imitate things that you see. Um, you don't have to arrange them in a rectangle. You can arrange them in any shape you want. And it shows on their site, you actually use the camera on your phone and it looks at the arrangement you have on the wall and then takes that and puts that in the app. So now you can control the lights like as they're arranged on the wall. So you could do like a diagonal strip or, you know, just uh, some triangles or something on your wall. And then you've got these light patterns you can create. And I love this. I liked one of the features they they're touting on their website. You can use it for leveling up your already ultimate battle station. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> so you could do all sorts of stuff. I mean, you know, it's uh, what I love it. I mean, this is actually called the canvas, right? And I, I love things that are like that where you can use it for just about anything. This expensive, uh, I think it's like two or 300 bucks for the starter kit, which has the one panel that the controller, and then you can, it has a bunch of other panels and then you have to buy groups of panels. And I think the panels run, you know, after a while they're about 20 bucks a pixel, basically. This, yeah, this, this three pack here is uh, $60 for yeah. three triangles. 20. So, so is the panel the pixel or does each panel have multiple pixels? Each one is a single triangle. That's a, that's a, could be a color. Or square, you, yeah. It looks like yeah. a, in looking at the pictures here, they look like bathroom tiles that can light up. Yeah. Although yeah. I think they have a couple of different shapes. You have to get triangular, but so four or five inches. Yeah. yeah. And you know, so in some ways you think, well, you know, for the cost of filling a rectangle on my wall, I could probably get a cheap television, you know, a, a television flat screen that goes on the wall. And then I have lots of pixels. But um, on the other hand, if you think about like in a store, getting a large display that does cool stuff, will sometimes range thousands of dollars. So suddenly it's, you know, in that context, it's not that expensive. Like if you wanted to, but, but if you were going to do cer certain kinds of wall art or yeah. you know, things, things could absolutely cost that much too. So sure. Uh, yeah. If you have say an office, like yeah. if, I, if you had an off front office, you know, to your cool tech company and you, you could spend a couple thousand dollars, get a, a whole bunch of these, put it on there and you could, you know, I have a, some sort of art it's like an art installation you know you could yeah. do all sorts of different things with it and uh and the price would actually be pretty reasonable but i i love the creativity i i think if i was young and single and i had a big space on a wall to fill with something i would love to put one of these things up there and you know just play around with different uh, designs and ideas and even animations and things that it could do just to make the space more interesting than just having say a picture I wonder what the response time on the um, on the individual pixels is. I just have visions of somebody getting 640 by 380 of these things, <laughs> putting up a big rectangle, or yeah. heaven forbid, you know, 1920 by 1080. And uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, that's going to be a really, really big screen. It's basically on the price of that. <laughs> at, at that point, it's jumbotron, right? Remember yeah. jumbotron yeah. screens? That this would be that, except it's active LED. As long as the uh, uh, the response time on the individual tiles was fast enough. I, there's probably another problem with the jumbotron idea. It's probably luminosity. 
I bet you, because I know awesome. the jumbotrons have to be very bright. If you put these tiles up, they're probably not bright enough that if they were that big and you right. stood back from it, it would probably be too dim to actually. But, but you but. could, for example, uh, maybe this is the future of theaters. Yeah. Because hmm. so. it's. That's a dark environment. Yeah, Basically, you could. you can see a, a theater being a screen, you know, a, a, uh, an active screen instead of a projector. Yeah. I saw you an know ad recently online on Twitter or Facebook or something for, um, it basically it looked like a, it was a television set, a flat panel display they could put on the wall, but its whole deal is it shows you art and it is hooked up to change to a different, you know, classic masterpiece every hour or something like that so i wonder if this is this and and the nano leaf is is part of a just larger trend for electronic interactive art for the home user sure i think I so i like the idea yeah i like the idea that you could be instead of just being a picture on the wall or even like a system where it's just going to show you a piece of art it's something you could do you know you could show your creativity whether it i mean it could be just as simple as some colored bars mm-hmm. represent your mood or something, or it could be like, you know, I know people that love to draw with in pixel art. There are apps out there that are for people that like to draw with pixels rather than, you know, vectors and everything or paint. Um, and you could just use this as a way to show off your creativity. Oh, the, it's, it's a way to create. So the next level on these things is mm-hmm. to make each of the tiles touch sensitive. Then all of a sudden you've got a canvas on your wall, not just mm-hmm. a display. Yeah, and that, can't, that shouldn't be too hard because it's one thing to make a screen touch sensitive where you need the location. The panels don't need that. Each panel would just right. be like, I've just been touched. There's been a, you, you know, they have like those lamps that they don't have an on-off switch. Right. Touch the lamp, right? It's a very simple little electric, uh, you know, reading that can tell if it's been touched. So, yeah. Gary, I think that you are, having gotten us all excited about it, you are obligated to get one. Uh, <laughs> uh, probably more, and, and many expansion kits. And <laughs> um, yeah, you should do that. You want to, see it, you want to see it in the background of your next MacMost video right. with, with a logo or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. maybe. maybe. <laughs> I'll see. I like the idea, but I don't know if I'm, I'm willing to drop a few thousand bucks on, a, on enough pixels to make it. Got to get it, honey. It's for the podcast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'll start a GoFundMe, right? Buy Gary, <laughs> buy Gary a 400 uh, leaf, you know, nano leaf canvas. That's yeah. funny. Well, I'll put one of the pictures of it in use on the show page so people can see what we're talking about. This yeah. podcast sponsored by nano leaf. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, there are. I and and I should say that this does seem to be a trend. I did notice, I think there were a couple other companies showing similar types of things. Yeah, I've seen some triangular ones. Yeah, most of the attention has gone to Nanoleaf. Uh, they've done a good job with PR here, but the, uh, there are other options. And if you search, if you go to Amazon and you look up Nanoleaf, and, you, and then you could go scroll down the page and you can see some of the competition. And there's some interesting things. So it might be a while before this market settles on what the, the dominant format of these kind of, you know, single pixels that you can put on your wall kind of things are so very cool yeah so uh to change gears except there are no gears tesla is entering their model three in pwn to own that's pwn the number two 
O-W-N, which is essentially a hacking competition that happens every year that um, uh, basically challenges hackers to break something. Uh, here, you know, here's our, our new software, our new package, our new whatever. Uh, if you can, you know, break it in some substantial way, we'll give you a prize. Uh, Tesla is basically saying, okay, here's the Model 3. If you can hack it, we'll give you a Model 3, which is actually... But they're treating fairly, it like a, like a bug bounty. It is. It's exactly a bug bounty, but it's a, it's a public competition. And I'm assuming that there's, you know, like a deadline and all that kind of stuff um, that to, to encourage people, not just to find, not, not just to, uh, you know, accidentally find bugs, but to proactively try and break it. And I think especially for something like um, cars that are always connected and have the promise of someday becoming autonomous, and they certainly have a lot of hardware in the car that will control various aspects of its of its driving. Um, yeah, I think that everything you can do to uh, to increase its security is a good thing. I just like the idea of making it a contest and having the prize be the car. I thought that was pretty cool. I think it's great, but I, I hope that the rules are that you have to attack a particular Model Three and not just somebody driving down the road that you happen to see. I suspect that's the case, yes. Yeah, I would think so. <laughs> I also hope that it's under uh, what would be responsible disclosure in the sense that, you know, hey, I found something, I'll make it public, and then I'll win the prize. No, you want to do it the other way around. You want to win the prize by disclosing it to Tesla uh, privately to give them an opportunity to fix things before you make the exploit uh, uh, public. Because yeah, they're rolling out updates all the time. Yep, yep. Yep, they are, um, which, you know, that's one of the reasons that something like this is so important. I mean, it, it is software. Software has bugs by definition. You want to know what those are. They actually have a model for, uh, for being able to fix things. Speaking of, can I, can I take this off in a different direction for a minute? You said something that reminds me. Be my guest. Thank you. Um, you. You were talking about ethically describing bugs and, and the order of which things should happen. Um, have you guys ever, you guys have websites, ever gotten an email from openbugbounty.org? No. no. This has happened to me a couple of times. And, and once this week, uh, so you get this email um, from Open Bug Bounty. It says, a flaw found on your website, website security vulnerability notification. Hello, a security researcher reported a security vulnerability affecting, affecting mysite.com with Open Bug Bounty coordinated and with Open Bug Bounty's coordinated and responsible disclosure program. Following standard guidelines, we verified the vulnerability prior to notifying you. Please contact the security researcher directly for details of the vulnerability. And then it kind of goes on to say, uh, the researcher, researcher may help you remediate the vulnerability, or, and then it kind of implies that if you don't do anything, they're going to put the information about it online on their website. <laughs> Which is what they do. I mean, that's just what they do. Yeah. Yeah. And this is a nonprofit organization that it, I, I want to think, hope that they're good guys. How, how, do, you, how do you know? know about their web, but it just all seems very a little, little dark, frankly. How do, you, how do you know that this organization is legit at all? This sounds to me like a classic phishing scam, um, you know, or, you know, their number one uh, goal is to get you to talk to this researcher who will then probably, quote unquote researcher, who will then probably uh, 
you know, off, offer to fix it for you for a fee or something. Right. So there's nothing broken except your, you know, the, the opening to your wallet. This seems to be a legit organization. The one time this happened to me before, and this was a couple of years ago, I did contact the security researcher and um, they told me what the problem was and how to fix it. And it turned out to be truth. And, um, and he's just like, if you want to help me out, you can send some money to my PayPal. Um, on, in this case, my, my uh, website administrator kind of went, okay, there's a problem with the site and started running some, some uh, cross-site vulnerability uh, tests and found a problem and fixed it. So we don't need to do anything with you know, contacting this, the researcher. We're pretty sure we found the problem. Mm-hmm. But, hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a big difference between developing software and then them finding a bug in the software you developed and you're using, you know, standard server software and then they basically just run like those tests on thousands of sites. Right. Find hundreds of them that have like some old copy of some part of a patch or something. something. Yeah. And then just send off emails to those hundreds. Uh, so... Yeah, I don't know about this. I mean, that's a I legitimate you, organization, but it doesn't seem like, I don't know. It feels really icky. It does. To put a technical slant yeah. on it. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, and to be clear, um, you know, the, the whole concept of responsible disclosure is that you, um, you, you disclose. Uh, you don't hold the disclosure ransom is what it kind of sounds like here. Um, but you, you actually disclose the vulnerability to the affected party privately, which they didn't need a third party to do. They don't need to go through some third party. They could go directly to you. They could, there's a, a million different ways where they could make the information available to you directly without sure. you having yeah. to jump through any additional hoops. Right. Why well, go so, through this thing? And they have a press release from 2017. It says nonprofit open bug bounty project reaches over 70,000 fixed vulnerabilities. So I think they seem to, they're acting like they're doing good things by helping make the web safer, which I like. But then if you have these random researchers that may or may not demand money to tell you what's wrong, you know, I I would hope uh, the the model I would prefer to see would be that the, these researchers who are looking for, you know, some third party that actually has a little bit of legitimacy and clout to get the website owner's attention, Mm -hmm. they would provide the vulnerability to that independent third party. And then that independent third party would then deliver it to you. Um, no strings, no hoops, no nothing. But, sure. Oh, well. Yeah. Very, very, like I said, it just, it feels sketchy for sure. That's what I thought. Um, a couple of weeks ago, maybe longer, I'm pretty sure we talked about how um, the authorities, the cops in general, are allowed or can uh, force you to unlock an uh, unlock your phone uh, using your fingerprint or your eye, if that's what you happen to be using. It's been known for some time that they can't force you to supply a pin because it's knowledge. Uh, it's something you know, and that then becomes free, you know, protected speech, apparently. Uh, but uh, something you are, your fingerprint or your eye, your retinal scan, didn't necessarily fall into that. A court in Northern California, a federal district court in Northern California, has ruled that the police cannot force you to unlock your phone 
using biometrics. In other words, fingerprints, eye scans, whatever else they might come up with. I find that fascinating. And in fact, I find that um, um, encouraging. I hope it sticks. I know that being a, uh, a district court, uh, what it really does is, okay, it's going to be the, you know, the, the law of the land for that district, but it's also going to get, um, I assume, uh, challenged and uh, taken to a higher court. But I just find, at least in this case, I find that reassuring that at least someone is thinking along the, the correct, what I consider to be the correct lines. How about you guys? I agree with you. And uh, but when, I, when I'm going through a, a, a border situation or a, a TSA, I always try to remember to uh, do the, the, tr- the, the newish trick on my iPhone. You click the, the side button five times and it locks it down so the biometric won't let you in. And, I, sh- uh, I should add that that is if you have it set to do that, because some people have it set that you click the side button five times and it calls the police. <laughs> That's another option, actually. It, it says yeah. you want to call the police or, you know. Yeah. Yes, but I've seen lots of articles that people that were you know, coming into the U.S. were told by customs and border enforcement to unlock your phone. And if you say no, they'll say, okay, we're going to just hold you until you do. Right. Yes. But at least you, at that point, you have the choice to acquiesce. If they just hold your phone up to your face and walk you in, right. you know, go in without your consent. That's and amazing. to be clear, this yeah, it means- makes me want to wipe my phone and then, you know, when, once I'm back on, on safe soil, log into my backup and say, okay, download my backup, put my phone back the way it was. Right. Yeah. And to be clear, I mean, this is, while this certainly does apply to um, uh, international travel, the same, I mean, the same concepts here, we're talking local things. That's, that's where I was thinking. Right. Cops and- Cops picking up, you, you know, pick you up for something and they demand access to your phone. They cannot, um, you know, force you to unlock it no matter what technique you happen to have used to lock it. I like that five click thing. I wish my, my Android had something like that. I'd be tempted to, uh, uh, have it do a wipe as well. I know that if you just, you know, in, in my case, I believe if I enter the wrong pin code 10 times in a row, that would be sufficient. It would do yeah, a self my, my too. Yeah, but that takes a lot longer than five, you know, and five, five power button pushes you could do while the phone is still in your pocket, right? So sure. fascinating. Anyway, I just, like I said, I, I thought this was, was really interesting so given that I believe we talked about it some weeks ago. Uh, it's not going to do you any good to... Uh, uh, to, to ask for fingerprints or uh, or an eye scan. If you're in the particular district in Northern California. Right. And it'll be interesting to see if this goes through. Um, you know, this this is one of those things that I could see getting uh, taken. Well, to now we've got area. basically different rules in different areas, so it's going to have to get, Yeah, you'd think. And there's okay. going to be, there are going to be different rules for border crossing too. Right. Right. I, I suspect border crossing will always be a harder sell. Uh, yep. You know, but, um, you know, more for local, you know, uh, stuff, it, it just makes a whole lot more sense. There are a lot of stories years ago about uh, people getting their laptops or tablets confiscated at the border, you know, U.S. citizens coming home and um, them, uh, you, you know, being examined for, of all things, not security stuff like Patriot Act stuff, but for copyright infringement. Right. So they would look for, uh, you know, MP3 downloads, you know, movies, that kind of thing on your laptop. And it was the industry trying to push 
uh, you know, uh, kind of copyright enforcement to customs and saying, you guys have to, to deal with this, you know, help us deal with this. And then, of course, people pushed back and said, no, they don't. <laughs> they don't have to help you with that. And uh, so I don't know where that ended up. But for a while, everybody was, you know, uh, told to like, hey, if you have any media on your on your devices, wipe it, you know, as the plane's landing when you're coming home. You know, if you watched a movie, wipe it so that it's not on your laptop anymore. Right. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and then there was a lot of abuse for that too, where the, the, the devices would simply be kept for a period of time, you know, and you'd have to make request after request to get them back days later. Meanwhile, you know, that's like a, something you need for work or for, you know, whatever it is you do. And, they're just holding your laptop right. with no, no, not being charged for anything. You know, and it's part of the thing with border crossings, right? They could do a lot. I think it's some of that's under the Patriot Act, but maybe under other things as well. There's a lot they could do to you that you don't have to be charged with anything. They could just decide they just want to mess with you. So, yep. So what else we have? Uh, I'm the next on the list here. Um, yeah. This actually happened a few years ago, but it just now came out. A Dutch astronaut on the International Space Station explained that you can actually make phone calls. They have a VOIP phone on the space station. And to dial international, you got to dial nine, then you got to dial 011 for international. Well, he got a text message after he made a call did you call 911? So apparently he was trying to make an international call and didn't get the zero in there and dialed 911, which of course sent, you know, probably uh, Kennedy Space Center security to the office where the other end of the uh, VOIP is before it gets into the, into the phone system. So interestingly enough, you can accidentally dial 911 from the space station. And that was Andre Kuypers, who's a Dutch astronaut that was up there um, a few years ago. I think he landed in 2012. And it's not even 911 in Europe, so he wouldn't even know that 911. <laughs> right. It's, uh, what is it in Europe? 999, I believe. 999, yeah. yeah. That's, I remember. Yeah, there's also, I think, 119 in Australia or something like that. And there's some 000 and things like that. So there's a lot of different ones and in the U.S., 911. Hmm. Cool. I know that I mentioned earlier about, you know, you can press the side of your iPhone five times and it will, if it's set to call police, it'll call police. Um, and I, I actually did that by accident once because <laughs> with my case on the phone and the phone in my pocket and the AirPods in my ears, I basically reached down to turn the volume up and could have sworn that I felt the two button, you know, the two notches on that side that were volume up and volume down. But in fact, I was mistaken and it was the other side. So I was trying to turn up the volume and press it a bunch of times and nothing happened. And then suddenly my phone rang and it was the police calling me uh, asking if I had just dialed 911. That was kind of embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So there's a the little, little bit of a danger. If you have that set, make sure if you're trying to turn your volume up that you don't, uh, that you don't press the wrong side. Yeah, and, you know, I work in the emergency response, and I listen to the 
to the cops in my county all the time, and they're constantly, well, not constantly, they're frequently dispatched to a 911 hangup where somebody dials 911, they go, oops, they hang up. Yeah. And even if the dispatcher gets them and they say, no, no, it was a mistake, everything's okay, the policy in my county is somebody has to physically go there and check to make sure that it wasn't somebody, you know, dialing 911 and got caught by their, you know, kidnapper or whatever. So they, wow. they literally have to go to the house. For any mistake? For any mistake in 911. Wow. Wow. Um, I accident, accidentally did it once um, on my cell phone, and I was able to give them my radio call sign and say, no, no, this was – this was a mistake. We're we're good. And they didn't dispatch it, but uh, yeah. I don't know if the, it's the policy here in, in in Denver where I live, but I was I was it, on it was my mobile phone, and I was actually like literally walking through the park. So I don't know where they would have dispatched somebody to if. Uh, yeah, it's a little harder with the cell phone. Yeah, but they did ask me some good questions, like to make sure that you know they didn't. I they didn't just let me go with a oh sorry I did it by mistake. They asked me a couple of questions about, you know, are you safe? Are you, you know, whatever. It's like, no, I, I am. And I talked to them very calmly and at, you know, didn't try to just get them off the phone as quickly as possible. It's like, just I'll answer any questions you've got because I know that the situation you may be in here with uh, getting a call like that. Yep. So I guess the bottom line is if you do it accidentally, answer the phone when it rings and right. Explain what's going on. Yep. So I wonder if they've ever done that from the space station. Gone to visit them? <laughs> no, you know, but, but dial 911, whoops. And then, uh, uh, you know, or, I mean, the, that, that visit would be a bit of a stretch. Yeah, well, it's, it's one way to get more people into space, right? <laughs> Send somebody immediately. <laughs> All right. <It's> like, yeah. <laughs> Let's call up uh, Elon Musk and see what we can arrange. We'll be there in a week or two. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So is that probably a good place to wrap? I think so. Yeah. You're going to wrap? Right, so going to wrap. Anything we've got coming up that we want to talk about? I don't actually have anything myself. No, nothing for me. Just work, work, work. Not really. I'm continuing to... Uh, Install and tweak and install and install and install my new <laughs> You know how that goes. Yeah, yeah. You get it right. I'm just looking forward to hearing Randy rap. <laughs> <laughs> name is Randy, and I'm here to say. <laughs> the show notes for this week are here yeah. to stay. <laughs> All right. Well, the show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh54. has all the links and good stuff like that. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at The TEH Podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again here next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.